Welcome to the STFM Podcast, brought to you by the Society of Teachers of Family Medicine. In this podcast, we speak to leaders in academic family medicine about a variety of leadership topics. And now your host, Dr. Saria carter Sicosia. Well, today, folks, we have a very popular topic to discuss, and none other than Dr. Catherine Florio Pipus is with us today. Just to give you a hint of how outstanding our guest is today, she was the 2019 STFM Humanism and Medicine Awardee. In 2019, she was also recognized by the Family Medicine Education Consortium, This We Believe Award and Caring for Me, Caring for You. And Dr. Pipus is just fantastic. So uh, without further ado, Dr. Pipus, Will you share with us a little bit of your background? Who are you and what inspires you about family medicine? Sorry, thank you so much. It's such a pleasure to be here and to share both my story, a little bit of the science and and some of the skills I've learned. I'm really excited. I think, um, you know, over the years, I've continued to educate. I had uh, 25 years of practice in family medicine at Dartmouth and and now the majority of my work is around well-being and promoting the health of all of us as, as health professionals. And, you know, the, the messages that I continue to um, prioritize um, are that we matter. Um, and I think for so long, we, we really didn't um, put that as a priority. And um, not that caring for patients isn't a top priority, but I think when we do so at the expense of ourselves, we get into trouble. And I think at this point, we are very much into trouble. Um, as a profession in, in medicine. So I, you know, I, I continue to try and walk the walk myself, um, which is probably what inspires me the most. Um, I'm inspired, you know, by everyone that I that I hear their stories, both both horrifying and, and successful. And, um, you know, I'm inspired by the movement that's happening in the nation right now around well-being. So my my own work has been based on the challenges we face. And so I'd say, <laughs> I, I've faced challenges just like every family physician for years and years and years, whether there are challenges in, in advancing the health of my patients, um, which has always been, you know, sometimes uphill battles, patients that are very complex and unfortunately getting more complex. Um, you know, I've been challenged to keep the, the health of my, of my colleagues going. Um, and now I'm very much challenged by these systems that are working against us and, and providing toxic environments. So um, my, my own um, life has lived the same experiences that that many of you have in in this daily stressors, um, and I I really believe that what motivates me now is the opportunity to take these challenges and turn them into opportunities, um, and think about how we can how we can make a difference um, not just for our patients but for ourselves. So true, turning challenges into opportunities. I love this optimism that you bring yes. <laughs> to our show today too. Always. This is because it, it can be such a, a downtrodden or dark topic when we discuss burnout and this direction and the spiral that some people are experiencing and the frequency of burnout that we see today. So how do we turn the tsunami around? How, how do we do things differently? Well, I would say that this conversation that we're having is one of the starting points. People always say, where do I start? And I say, let's talk about it. And, and it's becoming, thanks to you know the pandemic, thanks to the worsening of this, it is becoming more of an acceptable conversation to have. 
Some of the work by Tate Schoenfeld shows that we're still early in this phase. You know, we've had these problems in medicine where we ignore the needs, the emotions of health professionals um, for, for not just years, decades, probably millennium, you know, since the, the time of medicine, we have always put others first. Um, and, you know, I say that, that you know, I'm fine. I, I often will describe myself as fine. I'm the fine person, right? And, and that means that I've denied being hungry, tired, sad, you know, even joyous or grieving or any other emotion that, that they've, they've all been substituted for the I'm fine. So how do we begin to acknowledge and have these conversations? Um, you know, burnout is something that is, as you described, a negative cycle. We start to feel overwhelmed. We start to feel that we're not good enough. We start to have that imposter syndrome. You know, there's so many factors that contribute to this, but some of them are both individual and some of them are system. Most people would now agree that it's about 20, 80, 20% individual factors where we say, hey, you know, I'm trying to aim for superhuman. I wear that badge of superhuman perfection all the time. I'm never going to achieve that. I'm always going to be an imposter if that's my goal. Um, and then 80% the system, where the system is not supportive, it has policies and programs that are absolutely counter to our well-being. And so how do we begin to stop that cycle? Because we know that if we start to feel we're not adequate, we get more overwhelmed, we're, we have difficulty coping, we get into anxiety and, and patterns, and then sometimes our behaviors become as unhealthy as some of our patients' behaviors, and we can't unwind that. We get into burnout and, and the rates of suicide, and, and that cycle um, perpetuates. And so unwinding that cycle requires, uh, you know, in my um, experience, it requires time, it requires tools, and it requires permission. And so these are things that, that you know, I, I try and put into place as I walk the walk myself, but I think I also teach um, heavily. How do, we, how do we learn these things? How do we, you know, assure ourselves the time, the tools, and the permission? Mm-hmm. So say more, say more. I, I'd like to hear more about this 80-20 rule, if you will. Can you give some examples? of how we see systems contributing to perhaps this direction that we're headed. And I'd also like to hear if you've seen some systems who were trying to counterbalance or counteract that work. Surely we're Absolutely. seeing some optimistic results here. Absolutely. And, and we're starting to see a lot. I mean, I would say that as much as the burnout um, epidemic, if you will, continues to explode, so do the the solutions. And so we have now have so many different organizations that are making recommendations, that are making evidence-based guidelines, that have steps for us, that have direction for us, that have what we call best practices or promising practices, and a lot of evidence out there. So we are not um, in the place we were a decade or two ago in terms of not knowing where to go. So um, it may be the challenge of where do I start on this journey? Um, if I haven't, but most programs are somewhere along this journey. Um, and I participated um, with a with a large collaborative and published a, a document um, through the AAMC in 2021, where we surveyed over 500 different um, organizations and institutions, really with the question of what are you doing out there? Exactly your question. You know what's happening um, in the the arena of well being. What are the you know the champions that we will um, see out there doing this work? What are they doing? Um, and it begged the question because we realized that there were more people um, like yourself, like myself, getting tagged. You're it. You're going to be the well-being champion without any job description, without any direction, without any training, without any funding, without any resources. Um, and many of them were actually already starting to fail. And so we needed to study that concept and find out what are they actually doing? What do these programs look like? What are the policies they're trying to reverse? And so some of the results are really recommendations. And there's other many other sets of recommendations. but 
The things that have been recommended are interesting in the sense that they're not magic. They're, they're not, you know, these great undoable things. They're just things that we actually haven't applied in medicine to our own well-being. We've applied them in, in other ways. But so, for example, one of the first recommendations is to think about well-being in that mindset of improvement. So we know we do quality improvement, process improvement every day in our practices. Sometimes, you know, you know, what's the practice improvement du jour? We're always asking, like, what, what's the project today? Um, but to have that mindset where we say knowledge that there are problems around well-being, you know, we've not achieved the triple aim, we're not going to achieve the quadruple aim, and now there's the quintuple aim that's, that includes health equity in addition to better health, better care lower costs and the care of the of the health professional but but we need to think about this in terms of PDSA cycles some organizations are doing it really well where they're offering small amounts of money and pilots across their organization to understand from the front line what needs to be done and continuously studying this what are the things that are barriers another very clear recommendation is to have a vision for well-being in your institution and interesting enough, many institutions did not have a vision for well-being that included the health professionals. We all had them in our institutions, hospitals, medical centers, medical schools for patients, but often the words health professionals or all weren't included. And so how do we make sure that those visions are not only clear, articulated, but they're lived every day in everything we do? They're not just sitting on a shelf. And so, you know, if you have an opportunity to be a leader of change, in addition to taking care of yourself, making sure that your institution has a vision, that was something that absolutely led to some of the other successes when we studied it. And, and those successes included having those well-being champions, um, both at the organizational level. You don't have to all have uh, a chief wellness officer like the Stanfords and the Mayos, the Vanderbilts. You know, there are many schools that do have a lot of that, you know, VA. There are many schools that are, you know, very well funded, but, but there needs to be someone who has some authority, who has some centralized vision and can contribute at the front line. And the, the front line is really from what we were labeling as embedded well-being champions. So people who are in the in the works that are you know working at the front line that know what needs to be done and can represent the voice of you know the 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 nursing staff and the voice of the students and the voice of the residents and the voice of the physicians day-to-day -day needs you know that the the training programs are critical in those recommendations the the making sure that there are both curricular and extracurricular activities and some some of the curriculum that we talk about you know they're they're very basic, but we actually haven't put them in the framework of well-being before. These are conflict management. Conflict causes, you know, burnout. If we're, and, and you know, there's so much out there now, leadership training. If we don't have good leaders and we don't believe that there is a leader we can trust, we're much more likely to burn out, right? And, and if we don't have a clear sense of our own purpose. And so, you know, teaching people to have mission, vision, purpose for themselves, not just for the institution, but aligning their own visions. Um, with what they're doing. And, and many of these skills and strategies, cognitive reframing, you know, we get into that negative cycle that we talked about. How do we break that cycle? And, you know, we can then figure out what our distortions are. Why am I over-exaggerating? You know, my budget got cut. And why do I think that's the end of the world? They hate me. They don't like my work. They don't care about me. They're not. All of these exaggerations that grow when I'm feeling excluded, or if I don't feel like I belong, a lot of the work around diversity, equity, inclusion is very parallel to the well-being work. Um, and so making sure we have training in those areas, because if someone doesn't belong, or doesn't feel like they belong, their voice isn't heard, they are much, much, much more likely to burn out, to be isolated, to you know, feel like you're on an island. And, and many of us feel that way already in medicine. And that just, that just 
exacerbates the problem. So there's lots of things, you know, curricular wise metrics, you know, metrics are basic. If we're not measuring well-being, we don't know where we're going. And we often, um, you know, aren't transparent. Many institutions say, oh, well, I'm tired of taking surveys. I've had so many different surveys, but no one ever shares the results. And, And if the results are bad, I think we need to share those. We need to be transparent with our metrics. We need to use those as a conversation piece. You know, when when you said, where do we start? You know, we have to have this conversation that you and I are having at our institutional levels and talk about the the elephant in the room, if you will. Um, So all of these are strategies. You know, there's there's some some amazing things happening at organizations. You know, I think about, you know, performance dashboards. This was something we asked about in this particular survey to understand is well-being now considered something that we are evaluated on, not just our, you know, our performance or our RVUs, but but maybe my well-being. How do we think about this outside the box? There are institutions that are looking at the percent of people that took vacation, for instance. Um, there are institutions that are doing, you know, stay interviews and stay bonuses as opposed to exit interviews and, you know, sign-on bonuses. So let's not let our entire health professional group leave. Let's not let that attrition rate continue to grow. Let's hold that and figure out the people that are staying, what it is that they need and how do we make sure that they have it. So there's, I think, lots of things we can do if we have that level of of, of lens, if you will, from the institutional perspective to change the systems. Wow. So you've given us so much to unpack here. And I'm just reflecting on some of the things that you've said, Kathy, through this process. I I love that you call out, this is not magical. This is actually rather unmagical, yet essential at the same time. And there's a couple of things I want to say here. One is that why aren't we, and let's, yes, let's do approach this the way we approach all other areas where we recognize there's an opportunity to improve our performance through quality improvement. Why not use the science to implement strategies that work? So that's that's one piece. And I think this is really important to be having this conversation in the direction that we go. And second, I'd like to call out, I feel that we're evolving in this conversation. And it's exciting to me to see this happen. First of all, we had to recognize we had some burnout challenges. That's one piece. You've got to give folks the opportunity to speak aloud, to have the conversation, if you will. That's step one. Where I started to wonder where we were headed in this conversation as a country and as a healthcare industry and profession was the moral injury conversation. We could spend all day talking about moral injury. But it started, I, I felt, this is my personal belief, to develop more of a victim mentality of what is being done to me. And you do have to call that out. And, and as you mentioned, the 80-20 rule and the systemic influence. And now based on the survey that we're learning more about from you, from 2021, from the AAMC, is what are institutions actively doing? And everyone is on this journey, or most of us are now on this journey. What's exciting to me is we're flipping what is referred to as the Cartman's drama triangle. Instead of seeing ourselves as victims or the villain as being the system, or better yet, a hero, someone to save me, we're changing that language into how can I influence the conversation? What do we need at the table? Where do we go from here? But instead of an us versus them, a we versus they, 
How are we partnering? And I heard several of these words in your conversation just a moment ago and where we need to go. We also recognize that a well-being champion is not the panacea, it's a start. And empowerment, the science, the vision, and how to address what's troubling us. As you mentioned, conflict, that's one piece. Change, using cognitive reframing to get us there. So essentially, I have just reframed what you just said as where we're going together on this journey. And so I'd like to hear from you now, since we've talked about the systemic piece, tell me a little bit about your personal journey for well-being and resilience. And and how do you stay so positive with these challenges and this burden that we're we're trying to tease through and, and collectively come up with solutions that work? You, you are so right with this concept of journey, and it is a journey, and we have to start wherever we are. And part of my own journey has been accepting that, that wherever I am today is okay, right? Today, I may be struggling, and that's okay. And today, I may be thinking I'm the victim, and that's okay. But today, I may be willing to be vulnerable and acknowledge that I've struggled and that, you know what, I've been burned out many, many times in my career, and that's okay. Um, as opposed to saying, oh my gosh, Kathy, you're not doing enough. You've got to be more. You've got to You've got to be the perfect role model. You've got to be the perfect, you know, physician, perfect educator, perfect. And, you know, I've done that to myself for many, many years. And I think um, allowing uh, our vulnerability to lead some of this conversation is going to be what moves us forward. So you're right. It is both the individual and the system making changes. But I think the thing I start when I do educational sessions around this is I begin by saying, what is the most important message I can give myself and others? And I'd say, it's the idea that my well-being is critical to my effectiveness as a blank, and you can fill in the blank. My well-being is critical to my effectiveness as a mother, as a wife, as a clinician, an educator, a researcher, as a person, as a member of society, as a community member, as a leader. That once we accept that, which felt a little bit uncomfortable to me because it was always about patients first and students first and learners first and priorities and crisis first and urgency first. But my well-being is critical. If my tank is empty or if my tank is not full, I am much less able to care for others when my tank is full. And I, and I love that analogy when you're on the plane, right? You know, put your own mask on first and then assist others. So that's my premise, number one. Number two is that a broken system, of which I've worked in many, is not an excuse to not care for myself. It's a call for action. And it's a call for me to be part of that system. And you are so right, uh, Saria, when you say that, you know, it, it is about us. And I continue to say philosophically, there is no system. We are the system, right? There's no them. There, there's no, you know, and we want to blame, you know, when, when we said, what are the cause of this? The number one cause was the EMR. That's what we first came up with, right? When we had the National Academy of Medicine list of causes, everybody's pointing at the EMR. We all hate the EMR. It's the problem. It's the cause of burnout. Well, you know, the EMR is a tool, right? And if the tool rules us, then then we're in trouble, right? So we have to figure out how do we become, you know, leaders in our own system, even without a title, um, that we can be leaders by having specific training and by having the tools, as you mentioned, you know, it's whether it's emotional intelligence, cognitive reframing, appreciative inquiry. So so what do I do personally? I journal. Um, I journal a lot. And, and every morning I try and start with some me time. Um, and the me time includes my journal and then it includes something physical. And so by prioritizing me, and I tell people, whenever your me time is, it doesn't matter. You just have to have me time. I've seen chairs who put me time on their calendar publicly. And by doing so, it is so powerful because it gives you the time 
It gives you some things to do. And whatever you do during that me time, you could, I, I laugh. I say, you could watch cartoons. Whatever it is you need at that moment is what you should be doing. And then it gives other people the permission that it's okay. And if I go and take a walk at lunch for 10 minutes in the beginning of a meeting and I miss 10 minutes of it, that is what I needed. That is what I have to give myself permission to do. And then I allow other people the same permission, as opposed to the constant shaming that we have done in medicine for so long. And I've written, I've written a book um, called The Doctor's Dozen, 12 Strategies for Personal Health and, and a Culture of Wellbeing. And in there, I tell all these stories um, and you know the, the literature around evidence-based well-being strategies, but um, exercises that we can do. Some of those stories are about people who do closet self-care as health professionals because we're afraid to be seen taking care of ourselves. And you know we have this lovely gym across the street, but if somebody is a health professional and they're there in the middle of the day, they're hiding. They're saying, you know, oh, you don't see me, right? How, how you know, forbidden I should be from taking care of myself in the middle of the day when there's work to be done. And I say that, you know, I have to, in that mentality of taking care of myself, recognize that there's always going to be greater work to be done than I could possibly do. The workforce is not as large as the workload, and it never will be. So at some point, I have to declare that that that's all I can personally do for the day. I have to go home because the work's never done. And if I wait for it to be done, I'll never go home, or at least I'll never go home satisfied. Um, so there, there are many things, um, you know, I do a lot of uh, journaling in the sense of what can I accept today about myself? What can I choose that has meaning in my life today? Um, what are some things that I can embrace um, that might be negative and I can look for the good in them? And usually I'm trying to identify somebody I have to deal with that day that's going to be a challenge or going to be a struggle for me. And I say, okay, what are the good sides? My mother taught me that. What, are the, what is the good I can find in that person so that I can focus on that? Not the 99 other things that are not working well, but the one thing that is, that is their strength or that is working well. Um, so a lot of it is things that we have to do every day. We have been so triggered and trained with these negative experiences and negative thinking, the cognitive distortions that it's almost a, a daily practice. And I use stickies a lot. I have stickies everywhere that are my affirmations, you know, things that I matter, things that are important. Um, you know, I can do this. I, I have some that say I can do anything, but I don't have to do everything. Um, lot, lots of different mantras that I've learned that, that, I still need every single day to, to keep me going um, and to address these, you know, what many call uphill battles that we're still facing. Well, Kathy, you definitely have me fired up. And looking back on my younger self, I, I remember being a resident. I remember days of complete burnout. I remember days that I reached out for help and my recollection, of course, this is decades ago, recollection was unacceptable. Keep going. Right. And without the support, even though we've always had behavioral health pair, health support, it's, um, this is such an important conversation because I think about how we've overcome many of those challenges. As you mentioned, stepping away from the shame game. If you don't know everything, as we used to be told as medical students or felt, then you're not good enough. And as a resident, if you can't always perform and aren't always there, then you're not good enough, this good enough feeling. And so I, I agree with you. I think we have to be a part of the change. When I was the chair of a department of family medicine, I would have walking meetings to encourage that. that. And now, since I work remotely quite a bit, I, I announced to the team, you won't see me on camera because I'm getting my walk in. Love so it. you'll hear the birds instead. Yeah. And, and trying to, again, normalize that work. So thank you for empowering me. Yes, 
This feels so good. And to have that level of vulnerability. Now, now I am going to say this, and I'm sure we've got folks who want to ask this question and why I'm I'm, going to pose it to us. It's very different when you are department chair and you put me time in your schedule or you do walking meetings or you step away for me time. It's another when you're a medical student, when you're a resident or junior faculty feeling comfortable in that space. And I recognize, as you said, we are on this journey and we're all in different places on this journey. How do we get folks comfortable? How do you coach individuals? Because there's also a balance. Yes. So I see, especially with some of my senior colleagues, this frustration or resentment can grow of, oh, they're calling the well-being card. Oh, they're calling the burnout card because they don't want to do this or they don't want to do that. And that will always exist in our world. We recognize that in level of effectiveness and function. How do we hold ourselves accountable to use the card, so to speak, appropriately and balance between the two to care for ourselves and to not abuse it? What do you say to that? Yeah. And, you know, that question came up about a hundred times last uh, couple of weeks ago. I was uh, teaching at the RLS, the Residency Leadership Symposium, and I was speaking to 1,200 plus residency directors and, and their coordinators and associate directors. And every resident I've spoken to over the last couple of years has always said to me, have this conversation with my program director, right? Because I need that permission. Um, and I think, you know, the, the literature shows we need a culture change, right? Because the literature shows that our medical students come into medical school with greater levels of well-being, overall well-being, mental, physical, social, than their counter peers that don't go into medical school. But as soon as they hit our water, something happens, right? So we need to change our culture because they come in thinking I'm balanced. I can take care of myself. I'm doing all of the right things I need to do. Boom, they hit us. And, and my students, I say to them, what's in the water? And they're like, not enough SSRIs. I was like, no, that is not the right answer. We don't need antidepressants in order to succeed in medical school and residency and beyond. But we do need to be given um, the permission internally first and externally second, or maybe the other way around. But we need it both ways. We need it from our program directors, our chairs. Um, but interesting enough, when, when the chairs asked that exact same question that you did, my response to them was, first, you have to take care of yourself. Because if you are resenting setting up a well-being program for your learners, because ACGME and LCME is requiring it, and you haven't yet done that for yourself, you are not going to be an effective role model or mentor. So I say, first pause and say, what do I need in my own life? And a couple of tools that we use um, for these are the personal health improvement plan and the system well-being improvement plan. And these are things that I've evolved and developed over years in conjunction with some of the work that's happened through SDFM. And now the American Academy of Family Physicians, we're training over a hundred well-being champions every single year through a grant. And what we're what we're training them to do is to do exactly as you asked. Look in the mirror and say, what do I need now? What do I need in terms of strategies, skills, training, permission, you know, authenticity, and to put into place some continuous process of improvement for both myself and for my system. And so I'm taking those tools, you know, PDSA cycles, smart goals, et cetera, and I'm understanding my own needs. I'm doing a needs assessment based on, you know, U.S. Preventive Task Force measures, things I should be doing and aren't doing, um, or just some strategies that I, you know, that I have used in the past, but I'm not using now, or maybe some of my passions that I know are what bring me joy. You know, I may be, a, you know, a musician, I may be a reader, but I haven't done those things because I tell myself I'm too busy um, or it's not as important. 
And so how do I figure out what it is I need, whether it's exercise, eating healthy, you know, meditation, reflection, journaling, and do those on a daily basis. And we give people the skills and the tools to say, every day, I'm going to do something to improve my own well-being. And for 30 days, that's, you know, kind of the, the, the key amount of time to make it a habit, like brushing our teeth. We go through these cycles, you know, rapid cycles of change to implement something for ourselves, simultaneously thinking about what we can do at the system level. And, and that may be something as simple as creating a well-being committee to look at the issues. Um, it may be something, you know, I've, I've done it with many courses that I've taught for medical students and residents um, where they say, you know what, Dr. Pipus, you know, after all of their assessment and all of their needs assessment surveys, focus groups, they come back and say, all we need is a mandatory break during your lectures. I'm like, oh my gosh, that's it. Or we need a mandatory lunch break. We need to know that we have an hour because if we are struggling, we need mental health appointments. They're only during the nine to five time. So we need to make sure that we have the permission to take care of ourselves and we have the access to getting to those appointments during work hours. Um, so there are some, again, that concept of not magical, very simple things that come out. I, I've done some work with some of the business schools at Dartmouth as well, Tuck, and, and interesting enough, when I was hoping that they were immune to burnout, they're not, you know, they're not any more immune than we are. But I looked at what are the institutions that have the top rated well-being for their employees, and none of them were healthcare systems. Um, but they were companies that did basic things like gave all their employees lunch. They all had to go outside during the day because they studied it and they knew that if you replenished in these mini vacation times throughout the day, and it could be 10 minutes, it doesn't have to be a trip to Cancun, right? If you did mini replenishing, you had better stimulation of your frontal cortex. You weren't in the amygdala, you know, hijack all day. You weren't feeling like you were in a fight or flight and you were able to be creative and you were able to be thoughtful and you were able to solve problems. So other people besides healthcare professionals have learned the things that we're all experts in and applied them to themselves. So, so we're, we're learning. Um, and I think, you know, allowing ourselves that permission, making sure we all have the tools and then granting ourselves the time, no matter how small that amount of time is, is critical for all of us. And, and again, as leaders and as program directors, chairs, I think we're responsible first for ourselves and then for all of those that are in our, uh, under our support. Well, you've certainly brought me back to the basics. And what I'm hearing from this formula, this unmagical formula, (laughs) is that it's not unique to medicine. In fact, it brings me back to grammar school. And our teachers and our principals in elementary school have it right. We all need to be watered. I love that in schools now they have water bottles. Mm -hmm. We all need to be fed. Everybody gets a lunch break. And if you can't afford lunch, we give you lunch. And third, we all need recess. Mm. And why we thought as we became adults that recess was no longer important. I love it. Hogwash, I'll call it. Let's go back to the basics. Let's go back to our ABCs, our grammar school, because it works and it helps balance our children. Now, that being said, they're never done. Those skills are you can learn them, but you have to continue to practice them. So, yes, at some point I was exercising regularly, but as soon as I fall off, that's when I need it again. Right. So that recess is a great a great analogy that these skills begin early, like kindergarten, but we can't stop learning them. We can't just say, okay, now you're a medical student. All you need to know is anatomy, physiology and cytology. Right. It's not enough. You have to be able to sustain your own well-being. And we expanded the definition of leadership in medicine to include being able to sustain and model well-being. Because if you can't do that, you can't be a mentor in any area. It you is want so true. So true. 
And again, I think it's important to remember if it is good for younger human beings, why isn't it good for older human beings? In fact, if we think every child should have 60 minutes of exercise a day, I'm going to counter us by saying the only reason why we don't expect that of adults is because we live in a life and a culture where it's not acceptable. Therefore, we would be failing. Right. And that's not okay. Right. And sorry, we do expect that of our patients. Right. And so one of the messages is really we have to do the same for ourselves as we do same expectations as we do for our patients. No more, no less, because we have always said what we need them to do their expectations. We shoot for the stars, but we then hold ourselves in in lower esteem, less value. Right. Because we can do it all. We, we, you know, we're superhumans. We're we're this magical creature that doesn't need support, and and that's not true. We we absolutely do. We've just trained ourselves to be, um, you know, superhuman, unhealthy. So true. Superhuman, yet not having those superhuman capabilities. So I love that we have flipped the coin from burnout to well-being. That's that's an important part of this conversation. However. I also recognize, and I'm sure our audience will too, that there are folks out there who are saying, oh, great, have a well-being program, they said. It'll be wonderful. Identify a champion, they said. It'll be great. Do your PDSA cycle. Great. You added more work to my plate. So all of that in consideration, what are some lessons you've learned perhaps to meet people where they are? As you said, we're on this journey. There's a spectrum. What are some of those lessons of Ooh, maybe they weren't ready for it, or I could have done this differently. Yeah, that's a great question. I guess I'm always asking myself that. I, I think when I work with the faculty mostly, um, and I guess it's no different for students or residents, everybody wants to do it quickly. And I say this is a journey. Process improvement is a continuous thing in life. We have to start today. So there's no tomorrow. So don't ever say that we're starting this personal health improvement plan tomorrow because it always is today. So whatever we're going to do begins today, but it never ends. And so I might get really good back at the exercise, you know, incorporation into my life, but something else might fall off and that's okay. And so I think, you know, the, the lesson I've learned is that I, I am human and, and every part of me is human, right? My skin, my, my, my mucosa, everything is human. And, and so it is a continuous process of improvement. I can always get better, uh, but I'm not aiming for, for perfection. Um, and if I probably come back to those whenever I'm stuck, uh, it's probably it, it's probably the key words that again, my own well-being is critical to my effectiveness and 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 in a broken environment, a toxic environment is really the the charge for me to to make a difference. And so when I hit those walls, either personal walls or system walls, um, I have to come back and say, you know what? It's okay. I- I'm going to continuously improve. I'm going to sort this out. Use those PDSA type things to say, you know what? What is it that's bothering me right now? And asking myself what I need, which when I first began doing that seems so foreign because I was so used to doing what other people needed me to do. Being able to say no sometimes, um, you know, setting some boundaries. And I would argue that even students and residents can say no, that sometimes we're our own worst enemy. You know, yes, I'll do another grant. Yes, I'll do another project. Sure, I'll sign up for that. And then the things that matter and, you know, the, 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 the three things that matter in your life, always know what they are. Um, and I say, if you're wanting to be a good medical student, that's got to be number one, you know, and your family might be number two in your health, which means you can't then go and try and, you know, be an artist in some other area. You have to say no to some things at certain times in order to be good at others, in order to be effective at others and have a high performance. So 
we have to limit the number of things that we try and do and not aim for perfection. So I, I think the major lesson I've learned is, is really that, that it is a continuous process of improvement. Um, and I have to always look in the mirror and figure out what I need now and make sure that I'm, I'm considering myself in that list of things that matter. And beautifully stated. Thank you, Dr. Pipus. This has been an opportunity to reframe today, not tomorrow. Not tomorrow. No tomorrow. It's lifelong, lifelong learning and experiencing our lives. I, I think that's critical. I'm going to take away from this of what are my three things? What are your three things? What are the three things? How do we balance? Yes. In fact, I've, I've stopped this, this diametrical opposition of work, life, balance. Right. Integration. That's the new word, integration, right? Yes, integration, because here's what I see. Work is not separate from our life, just like our patients don't experience healthcare box by box or building by building. It is that continuous relationship with ourselves within our lives. And you, if you, I feel like if you have to box off work, perhaps there's something that needs to be done in that space, whether that's personal self-work or if it's finding a new work place. Right. To help balance that life and enjoying every moment in the space that we live in, because we also experience our life on this journey. So thank you, Dr. Pipus, for your words of wisdom, for your time today, and for our journey towards well-being and systematic integration with our peers, with our partners, and with our entire clinical team. Cheers. Cheers to our well-being. I'm very excited to go forward with you. And cheers to you. Thank you so much. A pleasure. You've been listening to the SDFM podcast, produced by the Society of Teachers of Family Medicine. Visit us at sdfm.org and follow us on Twitter at stfm underscore fm. This podcast is copyright Society of Teachers of Family Medicine 2023.